Well, good morning, church. Let's stand and read the gospel. Uh, John chapter 20, beginning at verse 19, we're going to read to 31. <coughs> so when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Well, after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to them, Because you have seen me, you believed. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Lord, this is one of the most famous passages probably in all of Scripture because of the things that Thomas declares about you. He uh, very clearly identifies who you are. And for our mission as a church in Genesis House, both in our families, in our work, in our own personal walks with our friends, this is obviously a declaration that we're trying to bring forth to everyone we know. And I'm not sure always how the opportunities arise that you present them for us, but... We are here as a church with this purpose, which is to declare that you are Lord and God and what difference that makes in our lives. So I pray, God, as we believe that, that the truths from this passage today uh, speak to us. And not only that we be hearers of the word, but doers of the word, and we understand what it is to be a follower of you. We look forward to our time together. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, Jeff. Well, if you remember from last week, we spent our time looking at the details of Jesus' first resurrection appearance to a woman by the name of Mary Magdalene. Well, as you can tell from the passage today, the one we just read, we'll be continuing in our theme of resurrection appearances. And today we're going to be looking at the, the, the resurrection of Jesus to the disciples. And I don't want to waste any time uh, sort of waggling on the tee, so let's just dive right in. <clears throat> In the first half of verse 19, we learn that it was in the evening, on the first day of the week, and the disciples had gathered together for fear of the Jews. 
Now you remember from last week's message that the first day of the week in Jewish culture would have been a Sunday. And it was earlier in the morning on that day that Jesus first appeared to Mary. But the issue for the disciples was that even though he had appeared to her, he had not yet appeared to them. And even though she had told them that she had personally seen him alive and well, they had not yet believed because they hadn't experienced him personally. But furthermore, the disciples had another issue at hand of great concern for them. So much so that they were afraid to even go outside. You notice that they were fearful of the Jews, and it says there that the door was shut. Now, they had fear for good reason. I mean, the, fear, the Jewish leaders had just put on a fake trial to get him executed. Uh, Jesus was innocent, but because of jealousy and hatred of him, they had him killed. And so they probably thought, well, we must be next on the list, because if, if Jesus was executed for the things he said and taught and believed, and we're his followers, we must be next. So they took all the precautions they could to lay low in Jerusalem and not be, known, not be noticed. And they secured the house to what they thought was the best of their ability. So you can imagine the surprise then when the first person who came looking for them was not the temple police, but Jesus himself. And in the second half of 19, it says that Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Now this must have really started the disciples. See, not only were they in a state of unbelief that he hadn't been resurrected, but they believed the house was securely tight. It was barricaded. It, they, no one's getting in here. And all of a sudden, Jesus, having defined the laws that govern nature, all of a sudden is standing there. Never even used the front door. He got right in amongst them. But notice the first thing that he offered them was words of peace. Why peace? Why now? Well, there could be a number of reasons. Um, in the Jewish culture, uh, the word peace meant shalom. And it was a standard greeting you give somebody when you met them. So you'd be passing on the street, say shalom, peace be with you. So it's a standard Jewish greeting. Jewish is, Jesus is Jewish. Their disciples are Jewish. So it's a natural greeting. Perhaps, though, maybe it was more than that. Um, in Luke, it records that when they saw Jesus, they thought he was a ghost. At least, because of course he appeared so quickly, so they thought he was a ghost. So maybe the fact that uh, he, they, he startled them so badly that he thought, I better offer them peace right now because they're just, they're just frightened. Or perhaps he offered peace because he had just literally brought them peace between God and man. I mean, the, the crucifixion was to bring uh, division, like the division that existed between God and man because of sin, um, he, he defeated that. So now they literally have peace because of the cross between God and man. God's judgment doesn't fall on them anymore. Or perhaps the peace was offered totally in connection to the fear associated with the Jews because these men were frightened and their emotions were high and there's lots of anxiety. And the very thing they were experiencing was not peace at all. But here's the thing that matters to us, I think, church. Regardless of what their situation was, whether his offer of peace was explicitly in connection with their fear of the Jews or a combination of all of the above, we learn something about the heart of Christ. In a time filled with high tension, fear, and anxiety, he did not come with words of condemnation, words of rebuke, but he offered them words of hope, assurance, and comfort. So much so he offered this, he actually said peace three times in this passage. In verse 19, he offers them peace. In verse 21, he offers them peace. 
And when he appears to Thomas in verse 26, eight days later, he begins with offering of peace. So not only do we learn something here about what it is to be a follower of Jesus in terms of the fact that he offers us peace, we also learn something else about what it is to be normal to experience fear. You see, as believers, uh, God never promised as part of salvation that we would not going to be fearful of circumstances that life throws us. He didn't promise to put us in this little holy bubble and protect us from the world. You see, the disciples were terrified of the Jewish people, and that was their fear. And he comes offering them peace, knowing full well what they're going through. Now, it didn't mean that these men were faithless. They weren't faithless. In John 17, 6, Jesus gives them this description in his prayer to the Father. He says this, I recognize these disciples as being men who have kept your word. So these, these men, these disciples who are fearful of the Jews, are defined as people who have kept the Father's word. In verse 8, in the same chapter, he says they truly believed that Jesus had come from God. So they also believed that he was from heaven, he was God's son, he was the Messiah, and so forth. They're not faithless people. In fact, they, they, they're given a wonderful description here. But nonetheless, the circumstances they were facing were very real. And it created real fear and anxiety in them. Well, that's important for us here too, because many of you are experiencing fear right now. You're going through anxiety. You're facing situations in life that have been met with unforeseen circumstances. Now, Jesus is not likely going to appear to you in bodily form. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that his offer of peace does not exist and stand for you today either. So I don't know if your fears are because of physical health, if it's to do with relationships in the family, overwork, whatever the issues are. Listen to the offer of peace that Christ gives you in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. He says this, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made to, known to God. And the peace of God, which, which, with, uh, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, the context when, Jesus, when Paul mentioned this here in Philippians was, was incredible. You might think, oh, well, they might have had some family issues going on here when he offered this, this offer of peace and do not be anxious for anything. Do you know what the circumstances in Philippi were? See, in Philippi, you are a Roman colony. And in that colony, the emperor of Rome was considered the God. He was Lord. To not deny him is... To deny him as being Lord was to mean that you'd be crucified or you'd be executed. You'd be executed. Here, these Christians are calling Jesus Christ Lord. And so now they have tremendous persecution in the church because they've got this competition between who's really Lord in their lives. Is it, is it Caesar or is it Jesus? And these Christians are under high tension and under potential death on a daily basis. And he says, be anxious for nothing. <laughs> But by prayer and to petition, let your request be known to God. And let the, let the peace of Christ basically rule your hearts. I mean, seriously? But that's what was going on. So all I can say to you, church, I don't know what you're facing. But if you want to even put it in the same category as, as if Nero was breathing down your back. Um, trust here that you can have peace. You can have peace.
Now, I have t I'm tempted to go off on a tangent about what does that mean? What does it mean to grab onto the Lord's peace in a time like this for what you're facing? I'd say two things. I'll talk to you after in private if you want to know what that means. However, I did do a sermon, April 2017, titled The Peace of Jesus, and I laid that out very clearly. Well, at least I think I did in 45 minutes about what that actually means. But you rest assured, you may not appear to you in bodily form, but the peace of Christ does exist and is offered to you today. So to reassure the disciples that it was really him who had just startled them and by appearing out of nowhere. In verse 20, we record that not only did he speak to him, but he showed them both his hands and his side. Now, when the disciples saw these wounds, of course, they recognized it was Jesus and they rejoiced. They rejoiced. They were overcome with joy. They recognized this was not a ghost. He wasn't a corpse that looked like it just struggled out of the grave. He, this was Jesus in a real tangible physical body, someone they could reach out and touch and talk to. So it was an incredible, an incredible witness for them. And these disciples then had the evidence they were waiting for. And Jesus knew it as well, because they'd been waiting for him. They, they, were going, they were in a state of unbelief about the resurrection because he hadn't yet seen him, and here he was. But now that they had proof of his resurrection, it was time to get down to business for Christ. See, he wasn't going to just enter into small chit-chat here. It was time to commission them into service. And look at verse 21. He said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And then he said he, that he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now I suggest there's two parts to this commissioning. And the, the, the two parts are this. One, they were sent out with Christ's purpose. And two, they were sent out with Christ's authority and power. Let's look at being sent out in Christ's purpose. Look at verse 21. He says to them in verse 21, As the Father has sent me, I also send you. So again, this is a comparison. Just as Jesus has been sent into the world, by the Father to do His work, so too were the disciples being sent out by Jesus to continue on in that work. It was to be a mirror image of the, of the mission and the purpose. Now, we understand that Jesus wasn't saying to them, well, you need to be crucified for sin like I was, right? We know that they couldn't have been, that was an impossibility. He wasn't asking them of that. But if you look at Jesus' life over three years, what did He do? Everywhere He went, He proclaimed the truth of the Gospel message, who he was, why he had come, and how to live in right relationship with God. So he was God's mouthpiece on earth and for three years proclaimed true statements. Likewise, the disciples were to go out in the world and proclaim the truth concerning Jesus, who he was, and so on and so forth. So the message is basically this, all people should repent. All people should place their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. And all people in response to understanding that should live in accordance with his ways. They should obey him as a life expression. So the disciples then were to understand that Jesus' mission had not come to an end just because he'd been crucified. It was just getting started. And they were to be continuing on as his representatives. But here's the thing. We know the track record of the disciples. It wasn't exactly stellar, right? Full of pride, full of arrogance, 
Even one time they wanted to call down thunder and kill out an entire uh, nation of people. Um, they failed on the last, the night before the crucifixion, didn't even get up and serve Jesus by washing his feet. I mean, these guys weren't exactly the most stellar in character. However, at the same time, he did send them out. So they weren't going to be sent out in their own power and left to their own wisdom. They were going to have to, there's going to be some divine intervention required here. And so they were sent out in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pick this up in verse 22 again. He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, and if you've forgiven the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they've been retained. Now we've got to deal with something here, because if you're familiar with the Bible, uh, if you're like me, you thought, hmm, didn't you, they receive the Holy Spirit 50 days later at Pentecost? Because we see in, in Acts chapter 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit and filling the room and the disciples start speaking in tongues and so on and so forth. So what do we got here? Do we have a contradiction in the Bible? Because we have them receiving the Spirit here, receiving the Spirit in Acts, and do they receive the Spirit twice? And we have all these things to discuss. Well, I, let me just say that I actually believe, and I think I can, I can uh, um, convince you as well, from the te New Testament alone, just from the Bible alone, that they actually did receive the Holy Spirit in fullness in Acts and not here. Let me give you the reasons why. First of all, in John 16, verse 7, Jesus told the disciples that the Holy Spirit would not come until he ascended into heaven. You won't receive the Spirit until I go to heaven. And look at what's going on with Mary in verse 17. He says, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. So get off of me, Mary, because I, I, I've not yet ascended to the Father. So Jesus recognizes, I haven't gone yet. So if you take 16.7, take his conversation with Mary, we know that the future coming of the Spirit is going to be at Pentecost from that verse alone. So that's one support. Secondly, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which is when the, when the promise of the Spirit was to come, this occurs many days after the first resurrection appearance. He was told, they were told there by Jesus that they were going to be bold witnesses. They're going to be bold witnesses in Jerusalem and around the world. Now, what's interesting is after John, in John here, when they breathe on him, what are they doing in verse 26? It says here that they were still again inside with the door shut. So if they're going to be bold witnesses after the Spirit comes, there, there's no evidence of this in verse 26 because they're still indoors and, and still in hiding. Not only this, in, verse 20, in chapter 21, verse 3, they're out fishing. So they're not bold witnesses. They resorted back to their old jobs. It's only in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes upon them that they're no longer hiding, no longer fishing, but they begin to immediately preach the gospel. So the fullness of the Spirit came in Acts chapter 2. I think the scripture clearly supports this. So what do you do then with John? What's going on here if they're receiving the Holy Spirit? Well, I'm not exactly sure, and the commentators don't know either. Because, well, I shouldn't say they don't know. There's no full agreement. They, everyone I read and listened to has different vari variations, but they don't all, like, know exactly why, what was going on here. But I do want to give you a couple cool verses, um, and I think uh, this comes from John MacArthur's commentary, and I think he does a good job of giving us some, some different thoughts. Uh, he says this, when Jesus breathed on them, it was a powerful illustration rich in meaning. Okay, so it's rich in meaning because the Holy Spirit is pictured in Ezekiel 37, 9 to 14 as God's breath. As God's breath. 
So the gesture was an emphatic affirmation of Christ's deity, making his own breath emblematic of the breath of God. And I looked up, I looked up this verse, and sure enough, you do see God's breath uh, going into these, the people who were slain, and they, come, they, they rise. So here we have, um, the, the, in Ezekiel, these people who are dead, coming to life because of God's breath. And here we have Jesus breathing on them, and, um, which is a symbol that he has the same sort of qualities as, as, as God does, the same kind of power as God does. But when you think of them being raised to new life in Ezekiel, think of what's happened in a spiritual sense here in, in, by him being resurrected. And MacArthur picks up on this. It was also reminiscent of the way God first breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, thus picturing the impartation of new life through the regeneration. Regeneration being the second birth, right? We were born physically, but we're born spiritually a second time. Which, under the new covenant, is always accompanied by the impartation of the Spirit. Okay, so he's breathing on them. He's saying, MacArthur's basically saying, this is reminiscent of, of what, how Adam came to life through God's breath, and we come to life the same way through the Spirit of God by rebirth because of Christ's resurrection and his crucifixion. So this breathing on them, receiving the Spirit, is a, it's, when he does this, he's not actually, they're not actually receiving the Spirit in the way that they were out in Acts chapter 2 proclaiming the gospel, and they're filled with the Spirit and so on. It's more like a corporate thing that they all receive at once. But furthermore, the reason why it can't be the impartation of the Spirit um, the same way is because Thomas isn't there. So if Thomas is a disciple and he's going to go out in the mission field, then he's missed the coming of the Spirit here, and that seems pretty unfair. <laughs> so again, this is more like a symbol of Jesus about who he is and the new birth that they've been given under him um, through the crucifixion. Now, if you want to debate that, I'm not going to fight you at all, because you'll have to fight the commentators as well. And they all have seminary degrees, and none of them can agree fully, so there you go. But at least it gives you something to think about. Whatever the case, here's what I don't want you to miss. Once these men were empowered by the Holy Spirit, now they had the authority to give, forgive people of sin. Verse 23. Now, Jesus was not saying what the Roman Catholics believe. The disciples now have the power in and of themselves to absolve one another's of sin. Right? The priest comes up to you and goes, oh, Father, I have sinned. Well, here, say, do five Hail Marys and then you're good with God. That's not what he's saying here. And that doesn't actually work. The New Testament never supports that, doesn't believe that. You'll never find anywhere in the New Testament supporting anything like that. In fact, he says in Mark chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 9 that only God has the power to forgive sin. Man does not in terms of absolving of sin. What is he saying then? He's saying this, that if the disciples preach the gospel message and the truth concerning Jesus, and those listening repented and believed their message, then they would have the authority to declare those individuals forgiven by God based on the authority of the message of God. So if I walked up to you as a disciple and I said, you told me your life, and I said, here's what it is to get restored to God and how to live, and you responded to the message I gave you, I could say, you know what, I can promise you based on the authority of the word of God I've been given to you that you're forgiven of sin. And God will forgive you. Not me. God will forgive you based on the authority of that word. Now that's incredible power. That's incredible authority and responsibility. But you know what? That's been given to you and I as well. That, 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 that's not just for the disciples, that's for, the, for us as well. In Matthew chapter 27, the Great Commission, you know it, you've heard it. 
He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That's the instruction to the disciples. But think about that. If, if we are become disciples, then we're to repeat that process and we're to go also do the same. We're to declare the truth, baptize people, and teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded. So we've been given that commission, and 1 Peter 2 makes that clear. But you, you and I, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that what? You can sit comfortably in your home? No. <laughs> you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is a, this is, these are Gentiles in this context, not Jews. There are people who have heard the gospel message. He says, you're to proclaim the excellence of Jesus who's called you out of darkness into light. That's a corporate challenge to the church, corporate challenge to our lives. We are to do the same thing. And that, the rubber hits the road for us in that, right? Because now we've been given the responsibility of the gospel, but we also can declare someone forgiven or not. And I know the people that I've had the privilege of leading to Christ in my life, uh, as I've been used by God to do that, I've, all, I've said, I can promise you now the forgiveness of your sins. And those of you who have struggled in your faith, am I a Christian, am I not a Christian, I listen to your testimonies. And when you tell me your testimony, I can determine whether you're a Christian or not by how you speak to me and the things you understand about Jesus Christ. I've been given that authority. So have you. But here's the thing, church. If we've given that authority and that power and that knowledge, then we, it's probably really helpful that we understand the gospel message in clarity, right? We, you and I better understand what God's looking for, and we better understand the gospel message. And we, we, should, we should know how to, to, to uh, proclaim it, and we should know the keys and the things that, that Jesus is looking for. Because otherwise, we might be declaring people forgiven that actually aren't. So the homework and the challenge is upon us to know this. So I got homework for you. This week, write down how you would present the gospel to someone. Spend just a minute, two minutes, write it down. Someone came to you, how do I know I'm forgiven? Write it down on a piece of paper, write down the gospel message, and write down the keys that you would be looking for and listening for from a person who said they were Christian. So someone tells you, I'm a Christian, you say, really? Tell me how. And you listen, how would you know? Look for the points and ask yourself, based on scripture, what would be the truth behind that? And what would you be looking for? And make yourself accountable. Tell your spouse you're going to do that and share it with them at the end of the week. Or if you're single and not married, look for someone close to you to share that with. And hey, I'd love to go for coffee with you if you don't want to tell anybody about me. And uh, I'll, uh, I'll uh, give you some feedback as well. So imagine how incredible a moment this would have been for the disciples, hey? I mean, not only has he appeared to Mary now, but now they've actually seen him themselves. But the problem was one of the guys missed out, right? We pick up Thomas in verse 24 and 25. It says, Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, this is a group test. I want you to give me one word that you know that is associated with the name of Thomas. What's his name? He is what Thomas? Doubting. Okay. How come he never gave me any other choice of words? 
Probably because the church throughout your life has told you he's a doubter. Okay? And that's all you know this guy to be. Well, I'm going to try to convince you again from the scriptures that this guy actually is probably more like you than you think. And he's more like me than we think. And this guy actually is a faithful fellow who's just got a case of unbelief in one area only. Okay? So I wouldn't, actually, I, would, I don't even call him a doubter. I just call him a genuine follower of Jesus. And I'm going to try to convince you. In John 6, 66, this is, goes on back two years ago for our church, we see Jesus here with many disciples, and he just taught some pretty hard truths. Really hard truths. And it says in 66 that many decided to withdraw and not walk with him anymore. So Jesus had more than 12 disciples, by the way. If you think he only had 12, he didn't. There were many disciples, but he had 12, what I'd call, close to him. All right? The 12 main guys. But he had other disciples. He would teach, 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 and many would consider his claims, and they'd walk away from him if they thought it got too tough. And in 666, people thought, you know what, Jesus, I can't bear this teaching. I'm out. Jesus turns to the other disciples and says this, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, we ain't going anywhere. Thomas was one of them. So Thomas, when others abandoned Christ, chose to stay when it got to tough teaching. In John eleven sixteen, 16, Jesus hadn't been in Jerusalem for a while because he knew the Jews wanted to kill him. But he heard Lazarus was, was sick, so he told the disciples he's going back to Jerusalem. The disciples all plead, Jesus, don't go back, don't go back, they're going to get you, they're going to kill you. You know what Thomas says? Let's also go with him so that we may die with him. Now, all the commentaries I read say he was pessimistic, oh, let's go back and die with Jesus, like that. Not a chance. I don't believe that for a second. He knows he's going into a death trap. He goes, let's go die with this guy. That's a, to me, that's a favorable response, not, a, not a, like a pessimistic, weeping kind of response. If he didn't want to die with them, he just abandoned them. I mean, just take off. Like, why bother going back to die with them? This guy was a warrior. He wanted to fight for Jesus Christ. He'd rather die with him than be separated from him. In John 14, verse 2, Jesus had announced to the disciples he was going to be leaving them shortly. Now, unbeknownst to the disciples, this leaving them shortly was a reference to his death and resurrection. But Thomas, when he heard this, didn't understand this and said this, We don't know where you're going, Jesus. How will we find the way to you? In other words, he was worried about separating from, being separated from Christ. And so he says, If you leave, I'm worried that I won't see you again. And that was his separation from Jesus was of deep concern. All the passages point to this guy not being a weak man of faith. This guy is a genuine follower of Jesus Christ who sold out in his teaching, is willing to die for him, and is worried about separation from Jesus Christ. <laughs> so when John has said in verse 25, unless, you, unless I see his hands and I see the side, I will not believe. He wasn't a man of weak faith. He wasn't denying his love for Jesus Christ. He was denying the fact that he, he didn't believe that he was resurrected. And no kidding. You know what this guy is like? He's like many of you in here. He's the kind of person who needs and wants proof of tangible evidence of the Christian truths if you're going to believe. He didn't care what other people said about Jesus, about the Christian faith. He wanted evidence for himself. 
And I'll give you, there's many of you in here, but I'm going to pick on two of you in here today that I know you're like Thomas. Keith, you're Thomas. Mary came up to you and said, um, guess what, Keith? Saw Jesus today resurrected. You wouldn't be like me, Peter and John around to the tomb. You'd probably be eating your soup at home going, yeah, right. And just keep eating your lunch and say, I, I want, until I see it for myself, I ain't believing that. That's a bunch of garbage. I've heard you challenge me in the dialogues and sermons. You're saying, well, if you're going to say that, proclaim that truth, I want to know where you got that from. And what about so-and-so who said that? Oh, and there you go. I've done that again. One said Jefferson. At least it's water this time. Don't worry about it. It's just water. Yeah. Yeah, so Keith, you're, you're, you're basically, unless you prove it to me, I ain't believing nothing you say. You're Thomas, but you're not denying Jesus Christ. I don't call you a doubter. I say you're a smart guy for wanting to check out what's true. Bethany, you're looking at your shoes. But you're the same kind of person as, as uh, Thomas. If Mary told you, said, I saw Jesus resurrected, you'd be like, oh, brother. Oh, brother. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right, right? You guys wouldn't be persuaded. You wouldn't be persuaded. You want hard evidence. No matter how credible you thought the source was, you'd want proof before you made any declaration you're going to believe a certain person or a certain thing. So you see, Thomas is the kind of guy you want leading this church. Thomas is the kind of guy you want in your Bible study. He's the kind of guy you want as an elder. He's the kind of guy you want in your board. He's not a gullible guy. He wants hard facts to the Christian truth. But when he gets them, when he gets them, look out. Because look at the de declaration he makes about Jesus Christ. No one else made that declaration after the resurrection, but Thomas did. But when he, bought, when he knows the truth, he buys in and he's committed to, to the Lord. And I know you're going to hear sermons from this day forward. He's a doubter. And they're going to present the truth as if he's a doubter because he's unbelieving. But let me just say, he was unbelieving only in the resurrection, not in his commitment to Jesus Christ. So you can't just lump him in as this big loser just because of that. Otherwise, Bethany's a, a loser, Keith's a loser, and your pastor's a loser. Because I'm exactly like Thomas. And trust me, I'm not saying if you're not like Thomas, you're not a great, genuine Christian either. Look what happened to, to um, John in verse 8. When he went into the tomb and he saw the linens and, and the face cloth rolled up, he believed. Believed what? In the resurrection. So he, he didn't have to see, but he believed. My wife's like that. You present Christian truths to my wife and I, I'm pessimistic, yeah, right? She's like, I'm in. And you guys all have spouses like that or friends like that or people in the church. You, some of you easily believe Jesus Christ and the things of Christian faith, and some of you fight them until the very end until you know they're true. My wife's John, I'm Thomas. They're both legitimate disciples. They're both legitimate followers. And if anyone ever preaches them as a doubter, just challenge them, unless you're not convinced that I'm speaking truth to you. <laughs> and you can challenge me in the dialogue. But, yeah, but I'll fight you in the dialogue if you challenge me on that. <laughs> Amen. Okay, so you can imagine now the shock and surprise when Jesus gives them what he wants, right? In verse 26, Having the doors being shut then, he appears to Thomas and says to him, reach in here with your finger and see my hands and reach in and reach here and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And he says, because you've seen me, you believe, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. 
I mean, I wish I could have seen Thomas's face when he saw Jesus, and we could just imagine what it had been like. But what we do know is when he saw him, he understood Jesus in a totally new way that led him to the most profound statement and important statement probably ever recorded in the New Testament. He understood Jesus to be Lord and God. So no longer was he a man who impressed incredible words of wisdom. No longer was he just a miracle worker who had incredible power to do different crazy things. No longer is he just the Messiah. This guy was Lord and God. So he was Lord in that Jesus had full authority in his life. His life was governed by God, the fact that he was his Lord. And he believed that he was God. He was the sustainer and the creator of heaven and earth and had the power to forgive sin. You know what's crazy about this statement? Jesus never corrected him. He never said, no, I'm just Lord. No, I'm just God. Or neither, or not, I'm neither. I'm just the Messiah. Jesus, by his silence, basically said, yeah, you got her, buddy. You're right. You're right. Now, Jesus' response is interesting, right? He says, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. That's great here, because Jesus' words to, to, to Thomas were not meant to indicate that there was anything defective in his faith. He wasn't defective because it took to him to see to believe, or he wasn't weak because it took sight to believe. He was still blessed. But Jesus was saying to Thomas, though, unlike you who required sight to believe, people are also blessed like you when they don't see and still believe. We share, that's you and I, we share in the same faith as Thomas, we have identical faith with Thomas. He saw and believed. We don't see and believe, but it's still the identical faith in the nature of who Jesus is. And I want to pick up on this a bit more in the lessons here. So let's just jump into some lessons uh, to finish off. And usually I just have about three, but um, I have about five or six today, but I, so, or more than that actually, I'll just give you five and we'll go through them fairly fast. But here's what I want to point out from today's passage. As believers, we've been commissioned to proclaim the truth of the gospel message. Verse 21. Jesus said, as I've sent, I'm sending you as I was sent. And we know from the passage of 1 Peter and the Great Commission and other places in Scripture, we've been sent to proclaim the truth of God. So we've been commissioned to proclaim the truth of the gospel message. Along with that, then... We have the authority then, as believers, to proclaim someone forgiven or unforgiven based on their response to the gospel. So when you present the truth, when they, how they respond, you have the authority to say to the person, you're, you're right with God or you're not right with God. You have the authority to do that. That's, that's, you, I mean, how you do that, you have to use wisdom, but you have the authority and the power to do so based on the truth of God's word. But again... Um, this is important because it comes with a lot of responsibility. You and I need to know the gospel message. And we need to know what God would accept as a confession in order to be made right with Him. So now we have, this is where the rubber hits the road. We have to actually put homework in and to understand if we can present the gospel message and know the truth that God's looking for. And you never know if you know until someone asks you. I was sitting in my room on Thursday, 1.30 in the afternoon, 
someone comes over to my house, a person I really hope ends up in our church one day, and we're talking about things, and I said, and I said to this person, I said, I, I know, you know, you and I have been talking a lot, I said, but I truly believe until you commit your life to Jesus Christ, you'll never have a heart that will want to do the things I'm telling you to do. And then she says, I, I know I want to believe that, but how do I believe? Like, what does God want from me? And I was like, oh my goodness. Like, so I had to give her the gospel message right there. And in the first, like, 30 seconds, I was like, my brain went blank. And I'm your pastor. It went blank because of this, the pressure now, like, the, the way I could go about it. Like, everything came to me at a, at a, at a hard, cold moment. So I had to, like, calm down and think, okay, how am I going to present the truth to her? And so I walked her through the gospel message. Now, I wish I could say she, she received Christ that day. She didn't. But she did say this, I'm willing to now hear the, I'd like to start hearing what the Bible has to say about God. So that conversation, now I can start doing Bible studies with her and open up God's word. And I know this because Hebrews says, the word of God is active and sharper than any double-edged sword and, and judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I don't have to worry anymore. So once the Bible is open now in our meetings, from now on, God will speak to her and I just have to be the presenter of truth. <clears throat> But, I, but you have to know, <laughs> you have to think and you have to know what God's looking for, okay? <clears throat> Third lesson. As believers, we need to draw on the peace that Jesus offers us in the midst of fear. <clears throat> Again, I know our church, this is timely. Last week's sermon was timely based on the events in our church. Uh, this week's sermon is timely based on the events in our church. But we have to draw on the peace of that Jesus offers in the midst of fear. Again, he won't appear to us in bodily resurrection. I highly doubt it. He does that to Muslims a lot. doesn't do it to, to, to us very much. But we need to draw on that peace. And again, if you want to walk that out and flesh that out, like how do you practically do that? I'm glad to walk you through that in a one-on-one coffee or just listen to my sermon um, back in April of 2017.